Welcome to Conversations in Complexity. I'm really pleased today to be with Dr. Carolyn Steele Gray, a scientist at the Bridgepoint Collaboratory for Research and Innovation at the Sinai Health System. Good afternoon, Carolyn. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm glad you're here. Um, give me a bit of a background on how it is that you came into becoming a researcher in the first place. Well, I actually started in kinesiology thinking I would go into medicine, specifically surgical medicine, uh, was where I really wanted to start back when I was 18. And kind of through my experiences in kinesiology, I spent a lot of time with athletes. I became an athletic therapist and an athletic trainer. Um, and I spent a lot of time in physio clinics as part of my job. And I started seeing a lot of the challenges that the PTs and the OTs were facing in delivering care there. And it was fine for the students who were covered by the insurance plan of the university. But they talked about their experiences out in the community and how hard it was to get care to their patients. And their patients couldn't necessarily afford physical therapy. And as a you know, 19, 20-year-old, I thought, well, don't we have universal health care here? And I started asking more questions about how our health system was structured and how it worked. And being in a degree with so many athletes and people who are interested in having kind of healthy lives, health promotion became an interest of mine. And so I kind of started down that track. And I, it's kind of a series of accidents, I think, that landed me in research. I wound up working with um, some sociologists as a part-time job, doing research and qualitative work with them in my fourth year and really took a shine to theory. I accidentally landed in a public policy master's. Um, just based on a really interesting conversation with the director of the program who I applied there. I had also applied to health promotion master's degrees, which I thought was where I wanted to land. But in this conversation with her, she was just interested in where I came from. I talked to her about the challenges I saw in delivering care in that athletic therapy office. And she thought that maybe a policy focus would be of interest to me. And I kind of followed down that train for that master's degree. And then wound up doing a health policy PhD, which was a natural progression from that master's degree, and thinking I would land very much in kind of this realm of policy work and senior policy work. Um, and it wasn't really until my postdoctoral work, which was here at Bridgepoint, where I think I really understood where I wanted to land. And it was through all of those experiences, asking questions from a lot of different levels, starting with understanding patients when I was in my kinesiology degree then going into the policy area um, in my master's and my PhD work, and then in my postdoc starting to understand more about organizational level and provider level issues, that it became more and more clear to me that we need to understand some of the issues of our health system from all of those perspectives and taking a whole system understanding of the way we ask questions of our healthcare system and, and how we use that understanding to move forward um, to deliver care better. So there's another fascinating thread to this narrative mm -hmm. that you haven't touched on yet. And that's your engagement with health technology, information technology. Uh, how did you get into that space? So that was very much my postdoctoral work. And I actually, through my PhD work, I remember looking at courses and looking at the ones titled eHealth and thinking, eh, I don't want to do that. And it's funny because my, my husband's a technology developer, so I kind of had a lot of exposure to it in my personal life. And and thought, well, I'm, I'm not convinced of its role in, t in healthcare yet. And I really wasn't through my PhD work. And it wasn't until the postdoctoral work where there was this opportunity to develop something new, develop something that would be useful to patients with complex care needs, um, and understand that from multiple perspectives, as I said, from a whole system perspective. 
that I started seeing where technology fits and where it actually ties together all of those different experiences I had. And technology is a kind of funny thing, right? It has a lot of social layers in it. People have very strong personal feelings about it. There are policy issues that surround it and there are ways organizations think about it and all those different um, nuances and understandings of technology kind of coalesce in a very interesting way in, in healthcare. And it's one of those places I didn't expect, but really brought together all of my different areas of interest. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I didn't know about your mm. deep background as an aspiring surgeon. Mm -hmm. I, I thought you'd always worked in sort of the technology field. Mm -hmm. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the, the health technology that you're using and, and the mm -hmm. project that you're uh, engaged in? Mm -hmm. So um, we started with... Um, trying to ask a very broad question of technology. So not trying to develop something that we thought was going to work, but asking patients who would be using it what their needs were, and then developing around that. So really taking what we call a user-centered design evaluation approach to designing technology. And where we ended up landing was very different than where we thought we'd start. And we ended up landing on something that enabled patient-centered, goal-oriented care within primary care settings. So, which was different than where we started. We thought we were going to develop something that would help us collect patient-reported outcome measures, and it would be great for the system, it would be what we thought would be great for the providers and patients, but it actually made very little sense to providers and patients in primary care. Those outcome measures really didn't have any meaning to them in their daily, day-to-day -day lives, in the way they cared for patients, and the way patients interacted with their own health. So... That process took about three years of iterative design, and this is where understanding patients, understanding providers, understanding the organization and policy was very helpful in doing that design and iterative uh, work forward and evaluation of that technology. Uh, so we went through the user needs assessment with the patients and their caregivers and providers. We did pilot testing and we did an exploratory trial, and now we're in a full evaluation of it, looking at it um, in primary health care family health teams across Ontario to evaluate its impact on quality of life and patient activation or their ability to self-manage. I think the most interesting thing about this evaluation is we've embedded an implementation case study. Uh, that's really where my biggest interest is and in coming back to that whole systems approach, understanding implementation from those multiple levels. And so four of our sites are going to be a little bit more engaged in the trial. So it's not just about picking up those outcome measures, but we're going to be observing the, the implementation of technology. We're going to ask questions about what people feel about the technology. What does it make sense to them? Where does it really fit in that model of care? And I think that's where we're going to get some of the most interesting findings out of this next phase of work. Yeah. So can you describe the tool a little bit more? So one of the interesting challenges that your research faces, and it's kind of a myth-breaking approach. So you're dealing with older adults with mm -hmm. complex health needs, so they're multimorbid, they're dependent uh, with care, and you're giving them tablets, right? Mm -hmm. Are you giving them like something like an iPad? You want to describe a little bit about the tool itself? Absolutely. What it looks like and how it's used? So there are two big features about the tool. There's a web-based portal and then there's a mobile application. It's supposed to enable collaborative goal setting. So it's not just something that just the patient goes off with on their mobile phone. It's not just something that the provider pushes to a patient. The idea is that they come together and they set goals for care together. And that starts on the portal system. So the portal is a web-based portal. There's logins for patients and providers. Very simple interface where as they have a conversation about goal setting, they identify one or two key goals that the patient has and can work with with their provider and other um, members of their team to get to. 
They set that goal on the system. It's completely flexible. So they write the goal out. They can set up different monitoring protocols, different types of questions they would be asked every week about how they're doing against that goal. Each goal has a goal attainment scale, so which is a typical scale used in rehab, where zero is you've attained your goal, plus two is more than expected, and minus two is much less than expected. And then that attaches itself or links to the mobile application for the patient. So that can be an app, their own phone, or it can be an app on a phone that we hand to them for the duration at least of the study at this phase. Um, it also can be used on the tablet. It's enabled in a lot of different formats. And then as the patient goes through their daily lives, or as a person goes through their daily lives, they are asked to monitor how they're doing on their goal. They might do that once a week, they might do that every day, and they might be asked questions about, um, did you go to your social group this week? And they would say yes or no, and if they didn't, they'd get an opportunity to put in some free text as to why it did or didn't happen. Um, they can do, they can monitor their blood pressure if they want to do symptom monitoring. It's really up to them. So, and it should follow them in their, their daily lives. So you've obviously found yourself in a field that is just growing exponentially. Mm. Would you care to reflect on where you see technology and health? I know that's a big uh, <laughs> question, but if we want to if I kind of maybe put a little more parameters around it, you're working in a primary care environment. Mm -hmm. How would you see technology enabling primary care providers to better serve their patient population? So this is a very interesting question and something that I've been mulling for some time. I think when I started working in e-health, my sense is it can solve everything. And yeah. as I've been going through it, it really cannot. And it's definitely not the silver bullet to answer healthcare questions, particularly not in primary care. And I think we need to be critical about where technology best fits in that model and how it enables good models of care. Um, and acts as a support, not as um, a Band-Aid, to uh, many of the system problems that are faced, particularly by patients with complex care needs. So there's an interesting tension here. I see that we need to fit technology into the, to the needs of patients, into the needs of primary care providers, but we could also think about technology as a potential disruption and a way to actually leverage health system transformation that's so badly needed, particularly for this patient population. I kind of like to think about it that when, when you think about a complex patient population, they're kind of the canary in the coal mine of the health system, right? They really point out where the major gaps are in the way that we deliver care, not just in primary care, but how primary care links to other services. On the one hand, we know that user-centered design tells us you, you should fit your technology to the need. You should fit it to the workflow. You should fit it to what the patients need, what the primary care providers need, and that means better uptake. And we've definitely seen that in our usability testing and in our uh, iterative development of the ePro tool. But on the other hand, are you potentially perpetuating a bad system of care? Are you just pushing along what's already been done and isn't work that we know isn't working? So how do we also not only fit the need, but maybe leverage change a little bit using the technology? And what's exciting to me about the ePro tool is it actually is, is doing that. While it was user-centered, we worked with users that were doing something very innovative with their patients, which was doing goal-oriented care. And the more I learned about it, the more it's something people have been talking about for patients with complex care needs, but we don't know very much about how it's implemented, and it's not very well spread. So the technology is fitting with people who are already doing this work, but for some of our folks who did the usability testing and the exploratory trialing, 
they were learning more about doing goal-oriented care and they were learning about how they can actually enable this as part of their delivery of primary care to their complex care patients. And to me, that's what's really exciting. So I think you're kind of walking a bit of a tension of making something fit, but also leveraging change um, for not just the patients who are engaging in behavior change, but also the providers and how they deliver care. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of courage in your work as well, because I think a lot of people gesture, hand wave towards technology, like you said earlier, oh, it's going to solve all of the problems. Mm -hmm. But when you actually try to embed and integrate technology into the sort of quotidian day-to-day functioning of healthcare, you find some interesting challenges. Absolutely. Um, for implementation scientists, it's a, you know, just a wealth of information when you try to put a new technology into um, any new system. And um, I work very much in information communication technologies, so you're kind of coming up against workflow analyses, uh, again, people's personal perceptions of technology, how people communicate, how people relate to each other. And asking ourselves where technology fits in all of those different processes is is very interesting and something we embed into all of our studies. So one of the really interesting and challenging facets of your research is you engage with people doing interesting things that aren't part of uh, your orthodox training in research. Mm -hmm. And so there's also kind of different epistemic cultures. So people who work in tech, they've got kind of an engineering mentality, I Mm -hmm. think would be a broad way of thinking. Like, let's try something and put it in place. They don't say, you know, we really need a well-designed, well-powered, randomized trial. What would you say is the most insightful thing you've learned from engaging with designers and others? I think it it is is just that, as you say, the need to be iterative and flexible in how we design technology and the need to be maybe critical about what we envision as good evidence or good knowledge about why something is or is not working. Um, So we're we're often required to go to our RCTs, our randomized control trials, and controlled environments to demonstrate effectiveness of a particular intervention. But technology and truly any complex intervention can't be controlled in the same way that maybe um, a medication trial can be controlled. There are a lot of variables at play, and many of which I've mentioned earlier, personal feelings about technology, organizational behavior aspects, things that just are, you can't put into a lab setting. And those types of designs are also years in the making, and technology changes in the blink of an eye. And if we are leaning on that type of evidence only for technology, we're going to be left behind. So by the time the evidence comes through for a piece of technology, it's three years old and the technology has moved on. So I think we need to, I guess, again, walk the line here. There's so much of my work I feel like is um, an an exercise in tensions and trade-offs, right? Mm -hmm. So um, how we think about putting in good evidence, but in iterative processes. And I think we've been doing as best we can in the development and design of the technology. In three years, we've done you know three or four iterations of the design. And what we do is leverage implementation science, qualitative methodologies, even things like PDSA cycles or plan, do, study, act cycle, cycles they would use in quality improvement methodologies, where you try something quickly, fail quickly, learn as much as you can by talking to people, by observing, and change quickly. And that evidence is just as useful to us as something from a randomized control trial, because it's really about implementation. And if you can't actually run the thing, 
even if it's effective, is it really doing anything for you? It's an interesting question. So would you have any advice for funders and system managers about what kind of threshold of mm -hmm. acceptable evidence they would need to make invest because there's going to be investments, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that they might want to, you know, how would they need to be reasonably persuaded to invest in a particular technology that could be scaled and spread through a large health system like in Ontario? Mm -hmm. That's such a difficult question, but a really important one to ask right now, because you're up against, you know, a history of what we value of knowledge and what we value as evidence. And I think people have been pushing against this for a little while now and are, are, have been making these suggestions. So I think it's going to take some risk takers and some bold moves to kind of definitively say that, you know what, if we can demonstrate effectiveness in terms of its ability to be implemented and in, in terms of people's satisfaction and some quick wins as opposed to um, controlled settings, something more pragmatic, more feasible, and more aligned with the way we understand technology to work, that is good enough evidence for us to start scaling and spreading. And if we try to control the environment too much, it doesn't really allow for the flexibility needed for something like a technology or something like the implementation of a any kind of complex intervention that requires iteration and it requires quick testing and moving. This is a challenging and important field. I know you've got a very complex trial underway now. Do you envision your future in continued engagement with these types of questions and interventions? I asked this because you mentioned before that you had a bit of a theory bug mm -hmm. and implementation science, which is really like fingers right on the ground, is a little different from the kind of reflective space of theoria, so to speak. So yes. is this where you're going to keep going or are you going to balance it out or... I'd like to be doing a little bit of both. I think that there's an, a, a very strong importance of doing both practical and theoretical work um, in, in this type of health services research, right? Especially when it comes to technology. So there's definitely an important practical element to putting in these new models of care to understanding them from an implementation science point of view. But there are mechanisms at play as to why certain things work and don't work. And that's where theory can be very informative and very useful. So what I'd like to be doing is balancing those two pieces, doing lots of on-the-ground practical work, but embedding theory to help leverage change, to help lead to health system transformation, and understand kind of the mechanisms of that change so we can actually scale and spread things effectively. Great. Thank you so much, Carolyn. I'm grateful for you taking time from your busy day to come and speak with me. Thanks for having me. Thank you.